you can kind of bring AI to Web3, and you can also bring Web3 to AI. But from where I sit, it's much, much more interesting to bring Web3 to AI, because when you do that, then you start to create more openness. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren and I'm here as always with my co-host, Michael Casey. Tune in every week to catch us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or find our Money Reimagined feed on Apple, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast platform is. And don't forget to subscribe, give us a thumbs up or leave a review. We really value your feedback. You can also share your thoughts with us at podcasts at coindesk.com with the subject line Money Reimagined. And we really do love hearing from you. So we're joined today by our guest, Jake Bruckman, the CEO of CoinFund. He's been focusing on looking across the entire tech stack, AI, Web3, crypto projects uh, for quite some time. And what he brings to the table is a deep technical background. His evaluation of projects really focuses on their technical fundamentals. We'll be chatting today a bunch about AI and Web3, one of our favorite topics, and diving a bit more into some of those details with our guest. Uh, But first, Michael, it's great to see you. Hello. Uh, We have been uh, engaged in various travels across the last couple of weeks uh, and yet to be in the same place again. But so I'm missing that. We're not too far away. I'm I'm further west today. But um, yeah, um, yeah, it's great. It's good. Looking forward to talking to Jake. I mean, I think CoinFund have been, I think, at the the front of the curve and sort of looking at the intersection of AI and and blockchain and sort of, you know, placing some, some fairly important bets on that. So and it's really just such a dynamic field to be looking at. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to, to getting, uh, getting down. But I'm also looking forward to actually being on a panel with Jake. I'm, I'm here actually out west in Colorado, and I will be at ETH Denver coming soon. And we've got a panel coming up there, which should be delving into some of this stuff. So I'm looking forward to We can think of this as a bit of a precursor to it. So. <laughs> well, I think it is important to note, and to your point, and something mm-hmm. we said on the show quite a bit, that the intersections of AI and Web3 are hardly new. This has been discussed actually even from the beginnings of the advent of the Web3 space and really the crypto space and the concept of tokens providing an essential frame around the use of AI, the tracking of data, all those kinds of things. It's really not at all new. So this has blown up in the public consciousness quite recently, a phenomenon we've observed with some... Um, some comedy, I think, around that. You know, there's always that moment when things sort of break through into the public awareness. But these are pretty old topics. And so getting into this with somebody who's been kind of thinking about them for some time is going to be great. But yeah, Jake, why don't we bring you in? And I, I, first of all, maybe just comment on that. It's kind of like all of a sudden, everyone, everyone, quote unquote, right, is talking about <clears throat> AI Web3, but you've been watching this space for quite some time. So what do you think is the sort of reason that a lot of that broke out? Uh, and also, yeah. how has it shifted over time in, in your observation? Awesome. Thank you, Sheila. Um, First of all, Michael and Sheila, thank you so much for having me on today. And I I absolutely would love to answer that question. Well, from my perspective, first of all, uh, why kind of dispel this notion that, you know, AI and Web3 intersection is something like very, very hypey. Like from my perspective, from some of the first moments that I got into crypto, uh, you know, looking at things like Ethereum in 2015 and Bitcoin as early as 2011, you know, one of my first questions was like, how does this apply to things other than cryptocurrency? Like, what are smart contracts going to do? And, you know, since then, we've seen crypto applied to finance, and that's called DeFi. We've seen crypto applied to digital collectibles. That's called NFTs. So the fact that crypto would be applied, or I should say Web3, really, um, 
uh, it would be applied to AI. It was a very natural process. It was a very natural occurrence in my mind. And, and also as a technologist, as someone who's been studying math and computer science in school and you know, working in big tech at certain points and, and also in financial technology, you know, I, I've been watching AI kind of develop over many, many years. And I think what brings us to the current moment is sort of a critical mass of, of advancement, of innovation in the AI space. And now this is becoming something very, very interesting for entrepreneurs to look at and say, how could we make this better? How could we bring openness to this space? How could we resolve certain you know, hardware bottlenecks that have been created? And how do we democratize it more and do more open source here? And it turns out Web3 is a perfect candidate uh, to turn around some of those strategies. So why don't we get to the, to the meat of this, Jake? I, I think uh, one of the things that's been interesting about this moment, this sudden awareness of AI, you know, this omnipresent almost aspect to what this technology is in, in the public consciousness, is this sort of trade-off between all the huge opportunities that it represents in terms of innovation and you know, advance and progress. And the fear on a variety of levels that this is going to just do great harm to society, right? Whether it's the, the dis- displacement of jobs, but sort of probably more, more importantly from the, the blockchain space perspective, like, can we trust it, right? Can we trust what these, and particularly these very corporate-driven models that are emerging? So, you know, I found it fascinating to suddenly folks come up and say, hey, we, we need some mechanism for actually proving the provenance of what's going into these machine learning models so that we've got some confidence as a society about what we're dealing with. And at the same time, the question to me is, can we get there fast enough? Because it, it does feel as if everything's moving really quickly. I mean, are you confident that you know, Web3 solutions will be introduced and can they be introduced fast enough to ad- address these issues? And are my concerns legitimate? I think we're seeing some of the Web3 solutions being introduced as we speak. I mean, there is a number of uh, decentralized networks out there in the market today that, for example, are aggregating GPU compute. And they're trying to, again, democratize access for compute for both inference, meaning getting the outputs of models in a you know, large scale way, and also training new models. Like if I'm a research scientist today, and I have a novel idea about how to innovate on, you know, some, some aspect of artificial intelligence, or maybe even I want to create AGI, uh, or I want to create some compelling application of AI. Um, I shouldn't have to be an employee of Google. I should be able to you know, go to a network and maybe even crowdfund as much compute as I need uh, to create some outcomes and some solutions and, and do research. And that is just kind of like not the case today. But even today, that's starting to be disrupted by, by these kinds of networks. And in fact, in the generative AI space, there are certain products that already run on decentralized networks uh, of GPUs right now. You can take a look at Crea, K-R-E-A dot AI, for example, and that creates beautiful real-time generative art based on things that you draw. And that requires a bunch of computation that is provided by a decentralized GPU network. So Jake, let's let's unpack that a bit because our listeners... Uh, know much more about crypto than they do about AI. And so let's maybe back this up a bit for folks who aren't as familiar with how this all works. So I think people understand the basics. You know, you need to take very large data sets in order to create and generate uh, an AI that can actually do anything meaningful with them and extrapolate from the data set to create uh, outputs. But maybe you can give us a little bit more of a sense of how that actually works, right? And then from there, we can maybe move a little bit into talking about why we're seeing 
a lot of capture by these big giant platform web two companies, which of course, you know, to preview is because to skip ahead rather is because they have all the data. But if you could walk through just really how that all yeah. Yeah, thanks. Of course, Sheila. And to, to me, I think of it as a little bit of a pipeline and not unlike uh, what you said. So I think it starts with sort of talent, people who have an idea of how AI should be trained and the, the mathematical framework in which it should work. And maybe people come with old ideas and new ideas of how to do that. Then there's the certain idea that like AI has made breakthroughs because we've proven that if we create scale, if we create really large neural network models, those models seem to be progressing in intelligence quite quickly. And that was absolutely not obvious before. And so what we know now is that we need, as you said, a large amount of data to kind of extract, train those models, extract that intelligence from them. And we need a large amount of compute to go through that process. And so that first, you know, those first aspects of that pipeline are people, data, and compute. And then, you, and then you create what's known as a large foundation model, just a foundation model. And then what people tend to do is they want to serve, like once you have a model, they want to serve it to people who are building applications on top of that. So that's called AI model inference. It's just you're basically, you know, when you put in your prompt into ChatGPT and when it spits the answer out to you, that's called model inference. That's what they're doing. There's a lot of people working on inference networks. How can we make that process efficient, quick, cheap? you know, et cetera. And then probably like the most interesting part at the end of the day is how do people productize these models? Like what applications are they actually building? And are they useful? Are they helping to create new pharmaceuticals? Are they, you know, helping doctors? Are they helping people write content for social media and so on and so forth? So I think of it as this um, kind of pipeline. And today that pipeline for the most part, is owned by a few large technology companies, like all the you know amazing minds who do AI. They probably, chances are, they work at OpenAI, Microsoft, or Google. All the compute is sort of, again, concentrated in uh, just two different kinds of graphics cards that are being produced by NVIDIA. And then through private contracts are being channeled to a small number of like big tech companies. Yeah. Um, and of course, inference, uh, it also depends on compute as well. And if you don't, if you're, they say it's, uh, there's a terminology for it called GPU poor. If you're GPU poor, then you might not be able to turn around as good products as you would, you know, otherwise. And so the goal of Web3 in this pipeline is to enable talent to work sort of independently and in an open source manner. It creates the opportunity to crowdfund these potentially very expensive model trainings. It creates the opportunity to do finance on GPUs, so you can uh, rent as much compute power over the period of time uh, that you would need that power in order to train a specific kind of model. And it really opens up like a world of possibilities for productization as well to create the best products for the consumer and not just the you know kind of Google Gemini's of the world as we heard this week. You know, really drop the ball on on their product, right? So that's kind of how I think about the nuts and bolts of of AI. That's extremely helpful. There's so many directions to go from there. So, so I'm going to choose one, uh, and then Michael, I know you'll want to. I'm sure you'll want to pull a different thread and all that. You know, so there's kind of this question. Okay, so what's the best, you know, neural network? Like what's the best one, right? And and it's interesting because in it, if you think about it in a very simple terms, you're like, oh, so the more data you have, the better your inference is going to be. Well, eh, maybe maybe not, right? You could have I could have like 
every single thing I do, everything, every thought I think, everything I do for Sheila Warren coded into something, you know, for my entire lifetime. And that would be a pretty amazing uh, AI that could kind of tell you in predictive terms what Sheila Warren is going to do if X input happens. But that's just about me. And that's not very useful to anybody else. Well, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's very useful to anybody, including probably to me. So the idea, and one of the things that's been uh, talked about a lot in the AI space is what are, are the data inputs going in? Because if you've got disproportionate training on a certain kind of person or a certain geography or a certain whatever it is, that's going to give you a different output than if you have a very broad-based set of data that's coming from you know all over the world, all kinds of ages, all kinds of back, you know, whatnot, right? That's often talked about in terms of bias in the data training set, but it's more than that. It's really about what is the training set for? Because again, if you're trying to create a predictive inference model around Sheila Warren, it's not really helpful to have Michael Casey and you know Jake Bruckman. Like that's not not going to be as helpful if that's your interest. And so it's always about the question you're going to ask. And what makes this challenging is not just that it, it's the ability to build a neural network and build an AI is not just about the coding skills. I think people often assume, oh, well, I can't build one because I'm not an engineer. I don't know software. I don't know how to code. This is about a lot more infrastructure that's needed, as you point out. It's not just data. It's also the sheer amount of compute, which, as you eloquently stated, is now captured by a couple of major players. So all of these foundational elements have to go in. It's like trying to make a recipe without having your core ingredients. Sometimes you can sub, but a lot of times you can't. And if you do sub, you're not going to get the thing you're actually trying to make. So all of that, I think, leads to this the, the pulling the thread a little more on how exactly is Web3 infrastructure helpful here? Like, so we can talk about decentralization, the idea that we're not allowing or we're not just letting the biggest players in a very controlled manner, right, decide what data goes in, what comes out, how is it trained, how do we adjust it, all of that. There are ways that you can actually decentralize inputs. You can also decentralize the training model, the questions that are being asked. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that and at the intersection of how decentralized yeah. really help here. Well, it's interesting because you can kind of bring AI to Web3 and you can also bring Web3 to AI. So let me talk about both of those views. Love that. Yes. Bringing AI to Web3 looks like, you know, taking an LLM or something and having it analyze on-chain data and giving you insights that you might not uh, have had before, or explaining something to a lay user about what's going on on chain that otherwise they wouldn't have known. And this is more like a kind of an assistant. We often see these like assistant use cases. It's like, let's disambiguate Web3, you know, yeah. through these new language models that we're able to do. And another form of that is like, hey, you know, we can generate images through AI and make them into NFTs. And that's another form of, you know, bringing AI to, to Web3. But from where I sit, it's, it's much, much more interesting to bring Web3 to AI, because when you do that, then you start to create more openness. And that's really, you know, a core, um, you know, sort of property of what and value of Web3. And this is really what we're trying to ultimately do. So we've already mentioned, you know, the democratization of compute and something that can be uh, maybe even having a finance on, on top of that. I think adding the Web3 aspects and being able to tokenize things like compute, which I think will come down the road a little bit, but that's going to be an incredible efficiency technology in the future when the world is much more saturated with GPUs than, than it is today. Um, the other thing is like we know openness 
uh, it spurs innovation in a, in a dramatic way. Like I always like to say that when, you know, when some of these big companies, when they say, look, we're, we're keeping this um, AI proprietary and closed because we're worried about safety and we want to solve the safety problem. You know, what they're really saying is that we think that a small number of people, maybe tens of people, uh, maybe a hundred people in a, you know, within a private company can solve this, you know, dramatically important problem. And to me, I think that's not correct. I think the correct way of solving such a problem is open sourcing it and having thousands of engineers work on that problem, tens of thousands of engineers working on that problem. And, um, and that's literally what's happening. Like even last year, there was a, a memo that went around Google that said, look, there's a lot of uh, innovation in models that is happening in open source. We've also seen Mark Zuckerberg at Meta um, open source Llama 1, Llama 2, and they're working on another Llama that's open. And during his um, call with his investors, Mark was basically saying, look, this is, we think this is the best way because this is going to create the most innovation in the market by being open and by being the, the company that, um, you know, that, that sort of fostered that innovation, we're actually setting the standard of what like, these models are are going to look like, and that's ultimately going to be, be better for us as a, you know, as a for-profit business down the road. So there's like the synergy, and by the way, the synergy is not new, uh, as Michael probably knows, right? Between open source and technology companies, and it applies to AI just as it is applied to open source, you know, in the in the past. And the other thing I want to say about the size of models, Sheila, everyone is really obsessed with big models, yep. um, <laughs> and it, it turns out when you uh, try to bring uh, big models on chain, that is quite a hard problem because to create a verifiable inference of a big model, there's only a few technologies available today that can verify the outputs. And, and generally speaking, people want verified outputs. You don't want to have some kind of critical application running on a model that can be attacked because it's in this like open peer-to-peer -peer network where anyone can become a node. So you want verification. But it turns out ZKML, which is the primary technology for, for verification of machine learning on chain today, it's not really that fast. And if you try to like verify GPT-4 using that technology, you actually would not be able to do it today. Like ZK technology is not scaled enough to be able to do that. And um, we have a portfolio company called GizaTech.xyz. Uh, and what they're showing is that you can actually bring much smaller models to the blockchain, uh, they don't necessarily have to be LLMs, they don't necessarily have to be generative art foundation models, but they could be smaller uh, machine learning models that create incredible amounts of value on chain. Mm -hmm. Let me give you some examples. One example is you can do facial verification and it doesn't require that, that big of a model. It turns out mm -hmm. that's a pretty easy problem for AI to solve. And so once you bring AI on chain, you could start to have, for example, wallets where a security factor is your face. And so you've created like better security uh, for crypto wallets um, and it doesn't require a large model. Another thing that we are actually seeing people in the market do with on-chain AI, because it is available today through uh, frameworks from Giza and other companies, um, a lot of people are applying that to DeFi, in other words, to financial applications. There's so much about DeFi that is not yet mature uh, and at the level of like finance in, in the real world. And one of those things, for example, is, you know, assessing risk 
How does how does a regular retail customer assess the risk of a particular um, you know yield generating opportunity or or liquidity pool or or some other element of DeFi, right? And using AI models, not only can you do that, but you could also build, for example, robo advisors that recommend sort of the 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 right courses of action for an investor in DeFi, knowing your personal situation, your personal capital, uh, your personal risk tolerance, uh, you know, and, and things like that. And so overall, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so bullish on the intersection of Web3 and AI is that at the very least, this is going to create an enormous impact in DeFi, and it's going to bring this closer to mainstream market, make it much easier and safer for normal people to use and these tools are like a perfect match to do that. I'm excited to share with you that our biggest fight, Reclaiming Liberty, Humanity and Dignity in the Digital Age, a book I co-authored with Project Liberty founder Frank McCourt, will be released on March 12 and is now available for pre-order. Our Biggest Fight is a manifesto on the need to fix a severely broken internet with a set of workable solutions for all of us to follow. It's a hopeful book, exploring the big opportunities for innovation and prosperity that technology can bring if it's designed with humans in mind. But it's also an urgent call to action. We must get this right for society now, before it's too late. Find the link to the book in the show notes. Global crypto regulation, the disruptive power of AI, the rise of tokenization. Consensus is the one event where experts in digital assets, blockchain, and related topics convene to talk about the ideas shaping our digital future. Join developers, investors, founders, brands, policymakers, and plenty more in Austin, Texas from May 29 to 31. The 10th annual Consensus is curated by Coindesk to feature the industry's most sought-after speakers unparalleled networking opportunities, and unforgettable experiences. Take 15% off registration with the code MRP15. Register now at consensus.coindesk.com. It does seem to me as if finance is about to get radically disrupted regardless, right? I mean, just the idea that you, you talk about robo-advisor, just that concept in itself is just automatically your mind goes into these areas in which this very established industry, whether it's DeFi or TradFi, is about to get really disrupted by it. So I think it's fascinating. But I want to unpack, I want to go back to this idea of the large models and the ownership of mm-hmm. the data, and the, you know, the, the tens of people versus the thousands and thousands of developers. Before I go into that, though, a very specific yes or no question, because when you start talking about, you know, shared compute and the idea of, you know, GPU, decentralized D- GPU compute, it got me thinking about decentralized storage that we've, you know, we've known as being a model and, you know, we've got IPFS, we've got a whole bunch of different ideas around that within the uh, existing blockchain space. Is it possible to run the same sort of thing where you, you know, think about decentralized storage, it's like, I've got my computer, it has X amount of XX storage, I can now basically sell that to the network. Is it similar with GPUs? I mean, because I know GPUs themselves are multi-purpose. You can use them for gaming, you can use them for graphics, you can use them for compute. Or, or is it that they are only able to do one process at a time? Like, is, is it possible to say, I can, I can run a gaming operation and at the same time lend some of my capacity, my compute capacity to this network? 
That's a great question, Michael. And let me unpack that a little bit because it has a few uh, aspects. So one thing to say is absolutely, just like we have sort of individuals contributing storage to storage networks, we have decentralized networks today where individuals can contribute computation power. Some of that is in the form of, of GPU computation power. One example of such a network is Akash. And Akash is a two-sided marketplace where on the supply side, people bring you know, GPUs of all kinds and all types. And on the demand side, people you know, rent machines like they would at, in AWS. EC2 is the service that you would use in, in the AWS for that and select the kind of computation that they need, and then they run their processes on those machines. So in that sense, yeah, the computation decentralized resource networks run very similarly to the storage decentralized uh, uh, resource networks. Now let's talk about GPUs a little bit. Well, it turns out to do really large models, you need what are known as uh, high-end GPUs. And basically those are like A100s and H100s from NVIDIA. What's one of the things that separates these GPUs from other like low-end or more commodity hardware is just the amount of onboard memory. Like when you're computing like a really, really large model, you really need a lot of virtual memory to store, you know, all the inputs, all the, uh, all the parameters and, and so on throughout the course of training. And these, um, these uh, hardware devices, they offer that. A100s are generally used for inference more so, and then H100s are really important for training uh, the models. Now, there's also people working on, hey, like, can we create AI frameworks that can run on commodity hardware, not just these really expensive high-end GPUs that are really difficult to source? And actually, if you go back, you know, 20, 25 years, and you look at Google, this is one of the things that actually made Google the tech giant that it is today. Because what, what they did at some point is they created Bigtable, which is an enormous, redundant database that runs on commodity hardware. And such, such databases didn't really run on commodity hardware before then. Once they established this kind of fundamental infrastructure, Google, they were able to create Gmail, you know, Google Docs. And today, when we upload our data into those things, we're not worried about losing our, our data. Like that system has proven to be like very, very robust. And in the same way, I think that you know, decentralized networks will find ways of bringing together commodity hardware to create really robust processes for trading and training and inference of, uh, of, of AI models. In fact, we recently invent, invested in a startup. It hasn't been announced yet. I won't say the name, but one of the things that they're doing is they're aggregating uh, different kinds of H100s compute from all over the world and virtualizing it into clusters that are now going to be like much larger, but the compute is sourced from you know, mm. from all these like different data centers. And that's, again, serving to democratize access to, to computation using a decentralized network approach. And what I love about it is like, if you, if you crack that nut, I mean, it just really, the economics of it just becomes so much more affordable to anybody outside of the, of the big five, you know, uh, uh, tech companies. And, and that's really what really, I think is really getting people energized right now. So on that mm -hmm. note, let's go back to the Google Gemini flub because I think you could, I think it's a really interesting topic to vibe into. They have this, you know, image generator, uh, generative AI program, and it and it seems, I mean, we can interpret it this different ways, but the thing that people are focused on is uh, this sort of almost um, effort to correct the inbuilt biases around, you know, diversity, racial equity, and so forth 
that is captured in the very large world of the internet, which in itself is a function of all of these algorithms that have steered us into these conversations. So that's a whole other conversation. But in any case, you know, the overcorrection seems to have gone to the extreme where we were seeing the founding fathers give us an image of the founding fathers and one or two of them are represented as African-Americans, right? And, and so like, clearly, you know, you've got these companies that are concerned about you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and, and Sheila and I are out there as people who believe that these are important standards for companies to strive for. And yet in the process, I come up with these absurd res- results. Now, my question to you is that, is that something that can be solved through a much more open source model? Do you believe that by open sourcing this, we wouldn't have made that mistake? This is like an overcorrection because the pool of knowledge being applied to solve the problem is so small, and therefore the wisdom of the crowd would have solved this, where maybe it would have introduced, it would have fought back against certain you know, unwelcome racial biases in the data, but at the same time made sure that these questions weren't, weren't answered in this yeah. absurd way. I just don't know if I have the confidence that even an open source environment would get it right, I suppose is my point. I, I think it would, and let me try to explain why I think so. So whatever side of the DEI you know, question you're on, it should be obvious to everyone that like, when Google implements a DEI program within their sort of product, it should be obvious to everyone that like, not everyone agrees with that program. They're, the world is like pretty segmented into people who might support it, might be neutral about it, and people who are vehemently against that. And you can, you can see that by just going on Twitter and like reading kind of the reaction to, to this product online. And just the fact that not everybody is on board with this program should be a signal that there's an opportunity in the market to create a better product. And that product, I think for me, like the, the most productive way of handling that situation is localization. I think the problem here is that Google has become too big and they serve way too many people and they're kind of like beholden to their own, you know, jurisdictions and liabilities and, and sort of social pressures that they as a corporation experience. And I think the world that is sort of, uh, that I want to see is one where technology is generally neutral and people localize it for the purposes that they want. You know, I think that the answers that you, sh- that you would get from ChatGPT in India should generally be different and sort of more local to the country of India than the ones that, you know, that you would get in America and so, and so on and so forth. And I think the way that you achieve that is actually openness. I think what happens is, you know, um, in order to achieve that, you could take an open foundation model. Uh, and by the way, there's a ton of them out there. There's, you know, there's Llama, there's GPT for all, uh, there is Mistral, there's, there's just like a, a whole, com- you know, competitor set of, of open LLMs that could be used for this purpose. And then every individual like locality or, or group or, or subgroup can train their model to be relevant in their cultural context. I think it's really, really unfair for companies like Google or like OpenAI to impose a cultural context on, you know, billions of people potentially, you know, without being sensitive to kind of like the things that they care about. From, from that perspective. So my position is like longer term, not only will these models become more local for that reason, they also tend to perform better when they're like less compromised by these, you know, kind of safety mechanisms. I've heard a lot from founders who actually use LLMs within their uh, kind of backend systems that the ones that are open perform better because they 
you know, they don't have as, as many limitations. And like, that's my view. And I think like over the longer term, you might even, it might even get so local that you, like every individual person will have their own LLM assistant that kind of speaks to their context and their data and their view of the world, you know, without compromising. Yeah, it's such a great point. And on the idea that tech is neutral, old tech has embedded biases built into it, right? Even the internet, uh, it was built by a certain group. It has a certain, it has certain kind of um, cultural connotations around it. Uh, it's turned out that that has not necessarily hampered uh, the engagement of people all around the world with the internet because of what the internet is, right? But when you think about things like AI, or you think about things like uh, crypto, frankly, right? And governance and all that kinds of thing, you bring to it a certain sense of, I don't like calling it bias because it is a bias, fine. But it's a bias that is engendered within the culture in which you are embedded and grow up in. And to your point, cultures have different priorities. They have different approaches to things. And the ability to basically, uh, you know, um, customize some extent that. But it all comes down to like, what is the problem you're trying to solve? What's the question you're asking, right? So to your point about individuals, Michael and I have talked quite a bit on this show about the idea that, you know, we're, we're probably moving to a world where you know, my AI agent is talking to his AI agent about whatever it is. And so my AI agent being very well trained on me, to go back to my earlier kind of silly example of an AI trained on Sheila Warren data, well, that's very useful if the entire purpose of that model is my AI agent's ability to navigate online or whatever with other AI agents and make decisions that are predictive of what my behavior would be, whether or not I've specifically responded to that exact question it's being asked at any given moment in time, right? And training that AI agent is an example of what you're talking about. And you can kind of take that out to think about families, communities, uh, cultures, however we define culture. It isn't just necessarily geographic, but culture can extend, can be global, right? There can be a global culture of gaming or whatever, where there's consistency, no matter where you, where you are in the world, around the culture of that game. So all these kinds of things can be embedded into a model. It's just a matter of like, what is that model for? And the broader the purpose of the model, the more you have to have, I think, all of these different perspectives and uh, options and all that kind of thing. And the best way to get there, I agree with you, is actually to have this be open source and to have the ability of folks from all over to basically kind of um, put their own their own thinking, and their own culture in, into that. I, yeah. I totally agree, Sheila. That's a great view. And, and I also want to add to your view that I think that is generally inevitable, right? Yeah. Um, I think like if you look at the time between um, like in the past when a big tech company would create a new AI breakthrough and then when it would appear on the sort of like open source market, that time period went from years, uh, maybe like five, 10 years ago, and to uh, I think in, you know, when Stable Diffusion came out, it was like the difference between Dolly 2 and Stable Diffusion was about six months. And now we're, we're getting into even shorter timeframes, like weeks or months between kind of a new breakthrough, like uh, Sora was just uh, released from, uh, from OpenAI, which is this like incredible, like photorealistic video uh, generative AI. Now, my bet to you is that we'll see like Sora level vi video generative AI within a matter of months from now, right? Not not years. And so, like that that open source process is just kind of a broader process that's happening and accelerating and becoming more accessible, and its costs are going down and will continue to go down. Um, and moreover. Um, just the, the fact that we have different communities with different views of the world is going to be motivating, you know, kind of different specialized AIs. It, it's like 
uh, every day that I work with ChatGPT, uh, I more and more come to the realization that it's just, it, it can't be just this one monolithic thing. It has to uh, really cater to the groups, the cultures, and like the audiences and their preferences um, that, are, that are using it. Well, I hope that that solves, you know, a point that I was just wanting to pick up here on that is that, I mean, I think Facebook is the way for me to think about this, right? It's, it's obviously, to the points you've been making, Jake, a good thing that, that, that Llama is being built on open source. It's going to be a much more open, active process. But I think one of the things that's also got to be remembered is that Facebook sits on a lot of proprietary data that is, you know, obviously being fed into that, that LLM. And, and, and that data itself, you know, this massive social graph that Facebook has accumulated on all of us over the last, you know, two decades, essentially, is in itself data that is reflexively being created in response to its own algorithms that have mm-hmm. you know, motivated us to do all the things that Facebook has wanted us to do as customers of their, of their advertisers, right? So we've, got, we've already introduced this sort of narrow proprietary bias into that data. And of course, that's a huge part of what, what is giving Facebook its advantage. So I really hope that what you're talking about is something that just keeps pushing out the edges and making sure that these sort of big corporate players lose that because I you know, have a very strong view that that's been one of the most harmful features of society. And I'm a shameless plug, have a book coming out about this. <laughs> biggest <laughs> fact. Every now and then I'm going to throw these in there. March 12th, get your copy. Uh, um, but it, it is, it's really sort of very important because this is, I think, where these, you know, where there's Google trying to compensate with Gemini for this biases that have been built into the internet and sort of making all these big errors in the process. So anyway, I think that's just a fascinating thing. Let's move on a little bit, though, because you guys were, uh, and still are, I believe, uh, uh, believers in WorldCoin. You're an early investor in that, in that project. It has been seen somewhat controversially. It is the second product that Sam Altman, also the CEO of, uh, of OpenAI has developed, and there is an intersection of those two. People have felt that the the use of the orb for capturing irises could be problematic in terms of biometrics. I know you have some views on that, but I just suppose I'd like just to hear from you your thesis on why Worldcoin matters <clears throat> um, and and how it fits in with all this, and and what do you say to to those who are concerned that it is a vehicle for you know manipulating humans uh, in the hands of a company that is really you know, well, certainly the open AI part of it has this big Microsoft piece to it as well. Absolutely. Well, I think that broadly speaking, WorldCoin solves an incredibly important problem in kind of the space of decentralization. And that is the problem of creating civil resistant accounts, essentially, right? And you, why is just that Just for important? our readers, explain what, it's a great point, civil resistance is a very, very important point. Can you just explain what that is? Absolutely. So WorldCoin provides what's known as a proof of humanity, which is... Um, you know, basically just a way of being able to, to say definitively that this wallet address, you know, on this blockchain um, is associated with one and only one human. And that is, um, that is a property or th- that is a, um, yeah, that is a property that has been like really difficult to achieve in kind of decentralization world where people can be anonymous, right? Like you can imagine scenarios where people register many different addresses, but they're all just like one person and then they're claiming airdrops from, you know, multiple addresses and things like that. There's um, civil, civil attacks are ways of gaming systems by assuming multiple identities at once. And what WorldCoin, at the core of its technology, what it does is it creates a system that prevents people from doing that. It's a mapping of one person to one wallet. And what are the applications of such a thing? Well, for one, you can solve, you can create fair distributions 
a value in, in a crypto context that usually looks like airdrops where you know, one and only one person gets one airdrop and, and that's it, right? WorldCoin is also, and this is actually one of the original reasons why we underwrote WorldCoin, is that they're working on a really, really wide distribution. They're, they want to grow a very, very big network of these uh, sort of um, addresses that have been, uh, where humanity has been proven. Because, for example, what you could do on top of that network is create a global universal basic income experiment. And that is actually what's happening right now because WorldCoin is being airdropped uh, to individuals who have registered with the system. There's no coalition of governments, I think, that's possible today that would be able to run a global UBI experiment. And yet we're running one using blockchain technology and, and WorldCoin's technology. I think the other like, really important use case of civil resistance within blockchain is, uh, is voting system. Every single voting system that we've ever seen uh, essentially in, in crypto, or the vast majority of them anyway, have been uh, one token, one vote systems. They're oligarchical systems where if you own, uh, you know, if you're rich and you can buy a lot of tokens, then you can exercise, um, you know, disproportionate influence over the governance of some of some project. And what WorldCoin's technology allows in this context is a one person, one vote system where you can actually have democracy. Now, I, for one, you know, I think that different kinds of government systems are appropriate for different kinds of projects. You know, there's definitely experiments we want to run where we want to have one person, one vote uh, democracy. There's other experiments, for example, you know, GitHub repos like Linux, where it's very, very clear that a small number of people have disproportionate expertise on the Linux code base. And you kind of don't, you know, want, you want to concentrate the power of, of governing that code base within the experts that are really qualified for that. And similar with nuclear weapons, right? We don't want people to democratically vote on nuclear weapons use necessarily. We want those weapons to be you know, used very, very responsibly, and only a small group of people have actual access to them. So these are some of the ideas that like WorldCoin, WorldCoin system helps to enable just in the, in the topic of governance. And, and I'll, I'll mention one more, which is, uh, I, I think, really important in the context of media and in particular social media. We can solve bots on Twitter immediately today. We have the technology to do it. And all it is required is a WorldCoin scan, right? And then you can filter your Twitter feed by people who are actually people. And that's it, right? Like, it's, it just creates, you know, a number of use cases overall that I think are extremely compelling and important um, you know, technological advancements. So, so how do you answer some folks? Look, part of me really like uh, is in on the joke, right? I love the fact that the the device that scans uh, your eyeballs is called an orb. You know, I, I think that's like oh, kind of like part of the sort of um, mythology around Worldcoin, right? And I, yeah. and I appreciate the sort of uh, self awareness <clears throat> of the fact that you're really literally scanning. But how do you respond to, to critics who have really talked about the potential? Right, biometric data is is the most sensitive data that exists really in the world. I would say, right, uh, maybe DNA, but I would actually argue DNA can be anonymized more than biometrics. And so, uh, just to, I mean, you know what all the criticisms are. So I'm just curious to get your yeah. thoughts on that aspect of it. Well, well, to be honest, I've done many, many, many podcasts on this. I've had kind of members <laughs> of the Worldcoin team um, answer questions directly on Twitter Spaces. I've done podcasts yeah. for over an hour where I, you know, we've gone through individual like technical criticisms. But what I find in these discussions is that usually 
the criticism comes from really kind of misunderstanding how WorldCoin works. So for example, a lot of people will be like, well, how can we give our biometric data to this company? But that the assumption of that statement is actually incorrect. The device never stores biometric data of people. In fact, this is a decentralized network that has gone to extreme lengths using zero knowledge proofs, using hash uh, technology, um, using sort of anonymity, using like all kinds of mechanisms to make sure that what we're doing, what we're not doing is sending iris uh, or photos of, of irises to a private organization. That is just not what the device does. And so like, I could probably get rid of, you know, 50 to, you know, 75% of the criticisms that are just kind of leveled offhand by educating people about how WorldCoin actually works. Um, so let me just say that. And then there's other criticisms that have been like, well, why are we going to market in um, kind of the developing world? And I mean, I think this is more of a, depends where you, where you sit and how you look at that problem. I would say like from an investor seat, if you look at WorldCoin as an identity technology, it has been incredibly difficult to create identity technologies that is adopted bottom up, meaning by starting something very small, uh, you know, in one country, and then organically growing that to be globally adopted. That is just not how identity gets adopted. If you look at Google, if you look at uh, Facebook, if you look at Apple, the things that you actually use to log into stuff, those are all companies that have had a critical mass of users and already have had their own identity. And then they kind of like, you know, open up that identity to be used in other places. And I think like one of the reasons that WorldCoin is going to market across the world is because to have a truly adopted identity solution, you have to be global. You have to have someone like of the status of Sam Altman, you know, to um, first of all, bring in enough money to execute such a strategy. And second of all, to, um, to really distribute it. Um, and then, you know, I would also argue that some of the developing nations are the ones that probably need identity the most. One of the jurisdictions that has been a little bit hostile to, to WorldCoin is India. But in India, they have their own iris scanning technology right. they do. that is being <laughs> yes, put forward do. by the government. And in that one, you actually do upload your the pictures of your irises and the government actually does keep them. So if you ask me like, hey, Jake, would you rather scan your eyes with, uh, you know, the Indian government's technology or WorldCoin, um, you know, or some of those uh, products that we see in the airports? I would pick Here, WorldCoin yeah. hands down because I know how much privacy actually goes into uh, WorldCoin. Um, but yeah. Interesting, Jake, because because you're you're right, and I think people's frame of reference around this is I'm so used to giving my data away willy nilly every moment without even realizing it, and so surely this must also be the next iteration of someone trying to grab my data. You know, I had a really funny conversation with somebody who was going on and on about Worldcoin and, and the orb, but then also. Uh, we were in line at the airport and they had clear. And I was like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very interesting uh, physical manifestation of a different thing. That, but, but of course, you can see how people who kind of made those choices would have a default assumption around what is actually happening there. When in fact, leveraging things like Web3 tech, I would call ZKP a Web3 technology, you actually have a very different outcome. And there is no honeypot of biometric data waiting yeah. to be by a supervillain to do whatever with, right? Or a supervillain, if, if depending on your political beliefs, that is the company itself doing terrible things. But so I really appreciate that that framing. It's super interesting. 
I have a, perhaps a special seat to just knowing how much privacy technology goes into WorldCoin because a lot of our companies that are working on, you know, ZK proving and, uh, you know, ZKML and stuff, they all collaborate with WorldCoin for the reason that that is a huge and supremely important topic uh, within, within the WorldCoin product. Go ahead, Michael. No, I was just going to say, loyal listeners would, would know that the, the reference to India is, because my favorite uh, episode from a couple of years back was uh, okay. we had Sheila's aunt, Usha Ramathan, is that right? Ramathan, yeah. Usha yeah, and and she's, a, she's a human rights activist who talked at length about the abuses that come with this sort of centralized data capture. And so it was really good to see. And it's actually, I just think, because we're going to have to wrap here, I'm afraid, because the, the topic is so rich. It's, I didn't think we'd go down to a conversation around identity, but clearly uh, it just shows you how rich this topic is, right? Once you sort of go down the AI meets decentralization blockchain uh, uh, concept, you end up with this, this very uh, rich, rich topic. It opens up just this world. So I think we're, you know, we're on the verge of something really dramatic. I mean, seeing some coverage recently, people sort of predicting the end of the SEO sort of driven internet that we live in that Google created for us uh, as a result of AI. So we are really in some interesting time. So thank you, Jake, for, for doing this, for helping to unpack a lot of really complex topics in very clear language. Um, I think this has been fascinating. I could have kept going for some time. So <laughs> thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael and Sheila. Really appreciate you having me on today. So, folks, that is all we have time for today. Come back again next week uh, for another episode of Money Reimagined. Uh, just a couple of PSAs. Uh, I just have to say, as I think we mentioned in last week's edition, I still do not yet have not yet formalized what my role at Coindesk is going to be going forward. But I do expect to be uh, actively involved in helping to lead consensus. This is our big event, Coindesk's big event coming up uh, at the end of May, uh, May 29th to 31st. Um, and so, you know, bear with me. And as we said last week, this podcast will survive. We're completely dedicated to keeping this thing going. It's been a labor of love and it will continue to be so. So one more another, Money Reimagined survives the, the various moves and changes that have happened at Coindesk. So anyway, thank you very much for your patience on all that, for listening, for being with us. Uh, do share your interests, your thoughts with us, however you want. Make sure you subscribe to us, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll see you again next week. So bye for now.